Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is in the series, Work Out Your Faith. Almost every generation has heard the phrase, I don't want to grow up, I'm a Toys R Us kid. Some of you are probably singing that song right now. Maturity is something that we should all long for, and today we will look at the marks of maturity. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Marks of Maturity. Hebrews chapter 13. We've been studying through the book of Hebrews. We are coming up toward the end, the last couple of messages on the book of Hebrews. You know, I was reading this week about a girl named Brooke Greenberg, and you'd be forgiven if you did not know who she was, but I just found the story very interesting. She suffered from a very rare disease that they didn't even have really a name for, and they just called it Syndrome X. And Syndrome X was such that Brooke Greenberg, she died at the age of 20 without ever having fully matured. It was just a really strange thing. She was the size of an infant until the day she died at age 20. The size of an infant, she still had her baby teeth. She could not, uh, could not eat the kind of things that we eat. She could not do the things that we do. Mentally, she was highly undeveloped. She never progressed uh, even to the, the place of a, a two-year-old. And as the story goes, she was pushed around in her stroller, physically, developmentally. She was not able to care for herself in any way. And eventually, she perished at age 20. It's just this uh, deeply saddening and bizarre disease. But as I was reading that story, I just kind of had to look away. And I said, you know what? That is the immature Christian. It's somebody who's possessed life for a long time, and all of us have concerns that the children that we have grow up and develop, don't we? Moms and dads, we get concerned if the child's age two and they're still not crawling. We get concerned if they get to school and they, uh, they just aren't able to socially engage with people, that they cannot, uh, they cannot get to a place where they are able to read or understand basic math. And those kind of developmental signposts that we have in our life, it concerns us that our child is not able to develop to that place. You have an expectation, parents, that your children are grow up, don't you? Because you don't want them living in your basement playing guitar all day long, all night long. You want to see them get out and be fully productive. We want to see that you can get out and you can provide for yourself, you can care for yourself, and hopefully that you'll be mature and responsible enough that y'all will get married and have babies. We get those grandkids at home that we love to spoil grandma, grandpas. Uh, and we just, we just have that expectation. But I would argue, friends, that God has a similar expectation of us. Does God save us? Now, when God saves us, the Bible even refers to these terms. It refers to us as babes in Christ. You know that when we're first born again, you're not fully mature, you're not fully developed, you're still stumbling with certain sins that are, you know, that are in your life, you're, you're not fully developed, you're not taking care of other people. But does God save us simply to leave us as we were with Christian syndrome X, just living our entire life for ourselves in this infantile state, being cared for by others, pushed around into strollers uh, by others, being fed by hand by other mature Christians? He does not. In fact, I would argue that in the book of Hebrews, that's one of the main points of this book, is to press on toward maturity. He wants them to be mature in Christ. These, these 
uh, Hebrews did not have as high a view of Christ as they should, spent the whole first part of this book talking about how Jesus is better than the angels, his priesthood is better than the Aaronic priesthood, and, and so on. And as most epistles do, these letters in the Bible, they begin with teaching you something about God, and then he expects you to do something with it. And that's where we find ourselves in Hebrews. He wants us to do something with this. He wants us to mature and grow. And he says this because some of the Hebrews weren't growing. They liked being infant Christians where you sit back and people take care of you and, they, and they, they, they caress your head when you're hurting, but you have no responsibilities whatsoever to other believers. How do we know this? Well, if you read in Hebrews chapter 5, in verse 12, the author of Hebrews said, by this time, in other words, they had been believers for you know, maybe several years by now, by this time you ought to be teachers but you need someone to teach you again. In other words, this isn't the first time I've taught you, you're just not getting it, you're not engaging with the truth. But I have to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You can't even eat meat, solid food. You need milk again. He says, by this time, that as a, as a period of time elapses from the time that you first place your faith in Jesus, uh, there, Jesus expects a steady progression that you're able to lift up your head, that you're able to roll over. We're seeing this in our, our first grandkid, by the way. Didn't bring pictures, but if you want to see, uh, see Amber, she's got them. Uh, but we expect to see our grandkid lift their head and to roll over, to begin to crawl, to pull themselves up, to walk, and we rejoice in those things. God rejoices in those same things with us. He loves it when we just slowly developmentally grow into something. He says, by this time, evidently enough time had elapsed that they should not only be able to feed themselves but others. He says, you ought to be teachers. It's a word that means uh, a debt that is owed, an obligation that needs paid, that God, seeing that he gave his son to die in our place, expects that in return, our lives will be viewed, as, as Romans 12 says, as a living sacrifice to him that we willingly give that up, that we desire to grow past being children, that we don't want to stay on the floor. We don't want to scoot around. We don't want to drink milk all our life. And so there's an expectation of growth and that we all grow up. So all throughout the book of Hebrews, there's this admonition to grow up and to mature and invest in others and to be faithful and to view Christ with the kind of glory that he deserves. And so what we're going to see here is there are several practical admonitions. These are some of the things that mature people do. These are marks of maturity. Mature people, number one, they seek out good examples. Have you discovered yet that maturity is not just a byproduct of time? Whether it's emotional, physical, you know, physical maturity, yeah, our bodies do natural things, but as far as like emotional and spiritual maturity, you don't get more mature just because you wait it out and, and pray that somehow your inner man catches up with where God wants it to be. Mature believers are mature because they seek out other mature people to learn from and to grow from. And so he gives us this admonition in verse seven. He says, remember your leaders, okay? Call to mind, think about, contemplate, observe their example. Which leaders is that? Our mayor, our boss? No, those who spoke the word, or spoke to you the word of God. Who are those people? Well, one of them is doing it right now. Okay, so uh, he says, recall to mind your leaders, specifically your spiritual leaders, those who are serving in a pastoral or elder capacity within your church. Somebody, or even a deacon, you know, the people that are ordained, uh, people who have qualifications set on them that we have observed their life, that they're exemplary in their godly character. Remember your leaders, specifically those who spoke to you the word of God. Okay. By the way, that's why it's such an awesome responsibility for someone to stand in the place and to, and to tell you, thus says the Lord, friends, my life's got to be impeccable. 
that as leaders in the church, our life has to be worthy of emulation or we have no business being in this position because we are not just here to perform a function. We're here as an elder to serve as an example to the flock. But we're to do what with these leaders? We're to look at their life, okay? We're to consider their life and do what with it? He says, consider the outcome of their way of life. Look at their life, look at how they live and look what that leads to. That's why, by the way, pastors, elders, those of you who serve in that role, that's why you have to live with lives where your families are in order. It's because you're not just called to lead worship, you're not just called to, to lead the youth, you're not just called to do you know, these various tasks. You're called to serve as a prototype Christian for people to follow. That you've got to, your, your, your example has to be that of Paul who said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he says here that we're to consider the outcome of the way of the life, how they handle their finances, how they do family, how they respond to conflict, how they faithfully persevere, their diligence in working hard. He says, consider the outcome of the way of their life and to do what? Imitate their faith. Now, I know it's very popular in Christian culture to just blanket say, never ever follow a person. Ne a human is never your example. And I get what you're saying, that no human is your ultimate example, but I'll show you a dozen scriptures that call you to imitate the faith of other believers. It's all over. I mean, it's right here in our text today, and I just quoted you another text that talks about imitating the faith of other believers, that we are called to uh, copy what we see. In fact, this word imitates, the Greek word mimeomai, if you, you uh, old timers, whoever that is, uh, you remember the old mimeograph, okay? This is where we get this word. Uh, you get the word mimic to copy somebody. You watch what they do and you mimic the way they talk, you mimic the way that they act, the way that they move. That's this word. You observe good examples in the faith. If you wanna grow up and mature, you need to find good examples who are living according to God's word and you need to mimic what they do. How they talk, okay, how they treat people, their way of life, how they, how they deal with their family, how they deal with their finances. We are to mimic these good examples because that's the way humans learn. We don't primarily just learn by books, do we? Aren't you glad your medical doctors don't just read a book and then they show up for their first surgery? Well, let's get out the scalpel. Uh, I saw it done in a book one time. Uh, you hope that brother at some point in time was on some kind of clinical, something where he's observing the life of somebody else who is performing surgery, where he's doing it with somebody else watching him. Ah, don't do that, you cut that, he dies. You know, we're glad. We all learn by mimicry, by observing. I don't care if it's a, a baby. Do they ever watch you, moms and dads, say things that you say? Sometimes it's a little scary. You know, a kid gets real angry. It's because maybe sometimes he's heard us say that. Uh, kids, they mimic you. They put on your clothes. They get in your shoes and they clomp around the house. Kids mimic what they see. Uh, and we all learn that way. It's how I learn Chinese. Okay, we, we went over to China, we served in China for a while, and I, I learned Chinese by spending time with Chinese people. And I would, I would literally, it may be a little creepy, but I, I watched their mouth. Okay, how's he doing that? How's he forming his lips? How's he using their tongue? You know, and I would observe my tutor and try to copy what I see. Uh, even when I worked at my first job at Burger King, they didn't just have me watch VHS videos. Okay, that's what we watched back then. Uh, VHS video, you know what they did with me after that? After I got done watching the Burger King way, they would put me on the line with some guy who's showing me how to make burgers and how to wrap the burger and, you know, and move on and just good practices. Was he the best example? No, but he was further along than I was. And even Burger King understands, you don't learn how to make burgers by watching a video. You learn it by watching a human 
Okay? And so that's what the Bible is calling us to do, is to imitate the mature people that are in your life, to, find, to seek out and find out examples. So if you're someone who views yourself as a rather immature Christian or Christian that has some growth to do, find examples to follow. Talk to them. Have a lunch with them. Be around them as much as you possibly can. Proverbs 13.20 says, whoever walks with the wise, to walk with somebody means to spend time with them, around them. Uh, it's the picture of a disciple, a learner under a master. You imitate what they do. You copy them. You, you follow them around all day. You don't just sit down for a class and leave. You're around them all the time to get their uh, habits that they may become yours. He says, whoever walks with the wise does what? They become wise. So for good or for bad, you become the people you hang around. If you're hanging around people of dubious character, you will become a person of dubious character. If you hang around people who are godly and mature because you are intentionally surrounding yourself with godly, mature people, friends, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. And so the Bible calls us to this. Now, as we look at verse eight, I, you'll see here for both of these, these first two points, I have verse eight with both of them because theologians will, will kind of banter around as to where does verse eight attach to? Because at just a casual reading, this almost kind of just jumps out of nowhere, gives you this great theological truth. He's giving these practical admonitions and he's like, oh yeah, by the way, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. How do we understand that? How does that attach? I believe it's actually nestled between two verses and this theological truth supports both of them. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's a theological attribute of God that we call immutability. Uh, immutable, it, it, you cannot mutate, okay? Jesus cannot change. And aren't you glad that, that maybe two, you know, 2,000 years ago he died for our sins and today he changed his mind and said, you know what, really y'all aren't worth that. I, I go back on my word. I'm glad that God doesn't change. And so why is this here and does this have any relevance to what we just read? Remember your leaders and imitate their faith. And by the way, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's because while God does call us to imitate the faith of godly, mature believers, select believers, they are not our ultimate example, are they? And they cannot be. Our, in fact, the people that we follow, sometimes they fall, don't they? My own mentor in the ministry, the man who, uh, who did a lot of great things in my life, I learned so many things from him. I did hospital visits with him. I did counseling sessions with him. He was one of my professors in the school. He was a mentor figure in my life, and he fell into adultery, okay? So human examples will fail you. They aren't your ultimate example, but Jesus Christ is. Some of your great examples on earth, they, they're kind of the anchor of your life, and sometimes we put too much uh, weight on a human's example, and then they, they move away or they pass away. What do I do now? Our life is not shaken. You lost your parents or you lost your mamma or papa. It, your life isn't over. What do we still have? We have, we have uh, verse nine here, or verse eight rather. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He will always be there with you and he will never leave nor forsake. Number two, mature people are discerning. Discerning is just a word that means to distinguish between good and bad, right and wrong, holy, unholy. Godly, mature people, they're discerning people. They know the truth. Verse nine says, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now, he's talking here, he's comparing and contrasting as he has done throughout the book. There were Hebrews back then who were under the 
Old Testament. Remember, the Bible is largely divided up. You have your Old and New Testament, right? It's another word for an Old and New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, largely the Mosaic Covenant, God gave them a, a code of laws. If you obey these laws externally, okay? It's just on the outside. As long as you obey these laws, I will bless you as a nation. If you disobey my laws, I will curse you. And so it was very conditional. Now, under the new covenant in Christ, through his blood, Jesus, he fulfilled the old covenant, but we don't have to return to that old external form where we're just worried about how we appear to God and checking off a checklist of things. Under the new covenant, he says, we're strengthened by grace. And grace is, is strictly defined God's unmerited, undeserved favor, the kindness he shows you, not because you're so good, but because he is. But grace, let's not think of grace in such a limited way. Grace is not just the favor God simply shows you. Grace is God's transforming power to change you from the inside out. It is him both at work to will and to do his good pleasure. Okay, so God's grace is something that we live in grace continually as believers as he transforms us from the inside. I don't just want to be externally right with God. I don't just want to, you know, dress the right way, come to church at the right times, give the right money and go home, but I'm internally unchanged. I want to be strengthened by his grace. I want to live under the, the, the grace and the freedom of that new covenant. But there were some Jews who grew up, mommy and daddy taught them in the old, old covenant, but now here's Jesus, and he taught us a different way. But we have some of these guys who are trying to return to the Old Testament, who are trying to return to ceremony, and they're just worried about the outside and how I appear without necessarily concerning whether or not you've been internally converted and transformed. And so mature believers are not easily, our text says, led astray. It's a word that means to be carried about here and there. If you've ever lost a piece of paper into the wind, you know what I'm talking about. That is what it means to be led astray. And it's going this way, and then the wind changes, and it's going this way, and you step on it. Whatever you gotta do, it, is, it's just, it just kind of seems to have a mind of its own. It's just traveling here, and then the wind blows a different direction. Now it's going this way. Being tossed to and fro is a characteristic of immaturity. Of, of children, that every time you hear of some new doctrine, some new teaching, some new religious movement, some religious fad, you're like, wow, that sounds cool, I'll follow that. That's what children do, because they're not anchored in Christ or in the word of God. And so he warns us uh, not to be led astray. Ephesians 4, 14 says the same thing. You see, he warns us that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, just these changing doctrines of man that blow around and change from day to day. Don't be, don't be led by those things. He says those things are crafted by human cunning, by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. These are just humanistic ideas that God's word uh, doesn't change. But children, they're easily fooled. Every time some new religious fad comes on, every time you hear a preacher on the TV and you just ingest it, uh, it's easy to be fooled. And, and that's a characteristic of children. Now, when I was a kid, obviously my, all of our parents thought that we were easily fooled because back then everybody was really conscious about kidnappings. Any of you guys grew up in the 70s and 80s? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? There was all these famous kidnapping cases, Johnny Gosh and some of these others. And and so parents were always teaching us, and teachers were always teaching us, you know, uh, what these tricks that the bad guys would do, you know. Would you like some candy, kids? You know, kids might fall for that. Or they'd have like a, a leash, and they would go to a kid and say, I lost my puppy. Would you like to get into my white, rusty panel van here and help me find a puppy? 
You know, and kids evidently did that. Kidnappers found that that worked. Now, would you fall prey to that? You're walking around, you're walking around Central Park, getting your, your exercise in, a white, rusty panel van pulls up, and some guy with a cigarette hanging out his mouth opens up the bag and says, hey, I'm, I'm missing my puppy. Will you help me find him? You're not gonna get in that van, are you? Why? Because you're discerning. You're looking at that and going, brother, I don't think you ever had a dog. I don't think you could afford one. I'm not getting in that rusty van with you. You're because you're an adult. You're mature. You're not easily fooled and deceived. But spiritually speaking, there are Christians who are easily deceived by every wind and wave of doctrine, that which changes one day into the next because it's not rooted in the Bible. It's rooted in human cunning. They thought of an idea, a spiritual idea, and it tracked well with people. And there's people who get suckered into it all the time. Immature believers are easily led astray. They'll watch TV, some guy says, buy my prayer shawl, and you'll believe it, and you'll spend $100 on some prayer shawl that Benny Hinn prayed over. You know, or a guy will say, if you're struggling with finances, you need to send seed money to me, and God will give you money back, this prosperity gospel. And there's Christians all over the world who get suckered into that. Or I'm gonna say this here too, friends. Please hear me on this. There are Christians who still get easily fooled by well-intended sometimes, sometimes not, they're fooled by other Christians who are trying to claim cheap authority by saying these words, God told me. God told me to tell you. Now, you say, Heath, I'm tired of you harping on this. You brought this up before. I bring it up because there's still many among us who are still being conned and fooled by cheap claims to divine authority. Friends, God is no longer giving us divine revelation. The Bible says, uh, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, that all scripture, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God, that's you, ladies too, that the man of God may be perfect, complete, and thoroughly furnished for what? Every good work. Everything in you, need, you need in your life to be equipped for every good work is found where? In my buddy telling me, God told me. No, no, no. It's right here. It's right here. Don't be bullied. When somebody says, and even if it's you, and even if you mean well, it, you, you got an impression that you feel like came from God, and maybe God is motivating you toward that. But friends, as soon as you say those words, God told me, understand what you claim to be. You're claiming to be a prophet. That's a scary place. You don't want to be a false prophet. You stoned false prophets. Friends, you're not a prophet, and God is not giving you new words, and we don't need new words. In fact, Jesus told us how the Holy Spirit will engage us in life, didn't he? Okay, Jesus, before he left this earth, he said in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. How? He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So what is the reasonable expectation of the involvement of the Holy Spirit in the life of a New Testament saint? He will bring to mind all that Jesus has taught us. And when Jesus got done teaching us, remember John 16, he says, there's more that I wanna tell you, but you're not ready yet, but I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit and he will guide you in all truth. By the way, that's not a claim uh, to simply uh, illumination, that's a claim to authority and to revelation. Where's the rest of the New Testament gonna come from? It's gonna come from you apostles. Okay? And so the Holy Spirit's role in the believer's life today is not to give you mystical, immediate, divine revelations. It's to bring to mind what God has already said. Mature believers bring to, allow the Holy Spirit to bring to mind what God has said. And by the way, he's not going to bring to mind things you haven't read. If you're not reading your Bibles, friend, do not expect that the Holy Spirit's going to be bringing to mind things you never read. God intends for us to wrestle with and study God's word. That's why it's so important to hide it in our hearts. Believers are discerning. That's why in 1 John 4, 1, he says, beloved, he's talking to Christians, 
Do not believe every spirit. Not that we're out here talking to Casper the ghost. Okay? Believe every spirit, he says, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. What he's talking about is behind every teaching, whether true or false, there is a spirit. There is a Holy Spirit, and for that which is error and false, you know, there's some satanic spirit behind this. That there is false teaching doesn't just come out of nowhere. Okay, so when you hear a teaching, you need to test the spirits. Is this from God? Or is this from some bizarre source, this some satanic source or some human source, some human spirit that is behind this? To test the spirit, it, just, it means to, to tr- test by fire, to try by fire. We're testing it against an example like the Bereans did. Even the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, when he preached, what did the Bereans do? They searched the word daily to see if what Paul said was true. The words that I'm telling you right now, friends, there's a reason we give you notes. I want you to go back and I want you to test my words because I'm not your infallible source. Don't say, well, why would I ever believe that's what Brother Heath believes and that's what I believe. Don't point to any human as your example of theology. You gotta root yourself in God's word alone. Listen to good teachers, find good teachers, learn from good teachers. But remember, Jesus is the one that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Human examples may fail you, even theologically at times. That's why you have to be a student of this book. But what it is, is the ability to discern between good and evil, right and wrong, to distinguish these things, it's a characteristic of maturity, isn't it? Because if you just ingest anything that you see that looks remotely spiritual, isn't that the behavior of a child? You know, you believe every book, just because Oprah said, by the way, if Oprah tells you to read a Christian book, you probably better not. Uh, She is no theologian. Um, You believe everything just because a buddy of yours at work who says that they're a Christian, they hand you a book and say, this is a great book, and you take it in. You don't even research who the author is, where they're from, who speaks for them. Friends, you're you're just eating whatever random spiritual thing that you find. You watch something on TV, and you just watch some random preacher without looking at his, his pedigree. Is this guy worth listening to? Okay, that's the behavior of children. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're at home and uh, you're throwing a ball to your dog and he does what he always does. That ball goes straight under the couch and not just a little bit, but all the way to the back, okay? And you reach under the couch and while you're under there with a flashlight finding that ball, you discover that there is a small handful of musty old Cheerios from like 2017, pre-COVID Cheerios. Is your first inclination, hey, let's not waste those Cheerios. I mean, somebody bought that. Did you reach back there and take those and you know, pop them in your mouth? No, you won't do that because you're, a, you're mature, you're discerning. These are not healthy for me any longer. This, there's better things to be eating. Now, reverse the situation, you've got your, your kid, your new baby or your grandkid, he's crawling on the floor, he f- finds his way under the couch as babies always do. They're magnetically attracted to anything that hurts them. And so they get under there and they see those chairs under the couch, what's that little kid doing? It's straight to the mouth. Anything that appears to be food, straight to the mouth. Paperclip, that's got iron, you know? They're eating that. You know, he sees the marble, that's going in the mouth. Pennies, in the mouth. Everything goes in the mouth. They test everything by trial and error. They don't examine first, should this be in my mouth? Why? Because they're immature, they're undiscerning. I always think it's crazy. Kids will eat all those things, but you set them down in a high chair with some strained peas, what happens? It's coming right back out, you know? Kids, they're not discerning. They don't know what's good for them but they're more than happy to try every flashy thing, every colorful thing, every Lego going straight in the mouth. And we've got believers, we laugh, but we've got believers that do that. If it looks spiritual, if it smells spiritual, it's bright and shiny and flashy, if it's on TV, if it's popular, if it's on YouTube, you know it's true. And we just take in that spiritual stuff without even examining, is this, is this healthy? 
Okay, so spiritually mature people are discerning. And this, I think, is where verse eight comes back in. Now let's back up to verse eight. How does verse eight support this not being carried away by every new wind and wave of doctrine? Okay, remember, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does that tell us? There's no such thing as new truth. My professors, they used to always say, beware of new truth. Why? Because there is no such thing as new truth. There's this truth. In fact, they would also say, new truth is just an old heresy. So, friends, as Christians, I know sometimes we're looking for something I've never heard before. Wow, this is exciting. You won't believe this. You have never heard this teaching before. Friends, that should be how, like, radar, like, like you know, flashing lights, flags, you know, the, the, the bars coming across the train track. Watch out. If it's something that's never been taught before, it's just an old heresy with a new paint job. We gotta be careful of these things that we, that we ingest. And honestly, this is also a real temptation for new pastors and new teachers. We're always trying to find something from the text that nobody's ever found before. Only me, only I, here in Ashland, Kentucky, by myself. I found this. No theologian before me, none of the great reformers found this, but I discovered this. As soon as you find something you feel like you've never heard before, you need to go back and study it again. Because what people need is not something fresh and different and new that they've never heard before. We're not even obeying the things that we have heard. You know, what do we need? You know, Jeremiah 6.16, look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. That's what we need. We don't need a new path. We just need to get back on the old one, okay? And that old path is found in the word of God. So Jesus is the same yesterday and day and forever. His, his truth never changes, so don't look for new truth. Verse nine, remember it said, do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings for, okay, because it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not foods which have not benefited those devoted to them, okay? There's no benefit in following these old teachings. Now these old teachings, evidently we're talking about, he says, foods. Okay, what is, what is it teaching about foods? I mean, we all like teaching about foods, don't we? We're pretty interested about teaching about food. Uh, he's not just talking about food in general or where to find good barbecue in Ashland. He's talking about returning to the Old Testament. There were certain p- components of that law that did not carry into the new. God's moral law never changes. It's always been wrong to steal, murder, and kill, and all these things. Uh, what's, but what, does it, what did change, though, is some of these ceremonial laws, these external things that we conform to, which are shadows and pictures of things to come. They have a New Testament fulfillment. But having been fulfilled, we don't return to the ceremony of it. For instance, in the Old Testament, I mean, you couldn't even combine different types of fabrics. You know, if you're wearing a, a cotton poly blend, you know, you can't do that. You know? If you're wearing, uh, if, if, you're, if you decide you want to go out and have some good Louisiana food, you can't be eating that shrimp. You can't have lobster. You can't eat unclean foods. And there were some of those Hebrews who were trying to go back to checking off a spiritual checklist. I do this, I do this, I don't do this, do you? you know? And they were just, it was all external. How do I appear to people? And they're, it says they're committed not so much to Christ, but they're committed, devoted, the text says, to those things. These, these old teachings of food, these humanistic, Pharisaic teachings. So they don't just keep the Sabbath and make it holy, they follow all these these dozens of rules about the Sabbath. You gotta count your steps, you can't climb a tree, you can't drag a chair in the dirt, and they're just following this Old Testament law still. And we've been freed from human tradition. We've been freed from ceremonial law. So if y'all wanna go out to Red Lobster and enjoy some, you know, butterfly shrimp with coconut, 
you feel free to do that. We have freedom in Christ to do that. But there were some who thought they were better people because they didn't eat shrimp. So we don't return to that. We're not devoted. It says that this type of religion, external law keeping, just checking off a list, he says it doesn't benefit you. They've not benefited from this. It, hasn't, it doesn't transform you internally. It doesn't make you better with God. Okay? We are strengthened by grace. We're changed from the inside. Jeremiah talked about the day when God will take the law from your hands where it's external and he's gonna write it on our hearts where we instinctively desire to be holy as God is holy. And we keep in step with the Spirit. Number three, a mature person is willing to suffer for their faith. Look at verse 10. He says, we have, now, by the way, let me just preface this. This is gonna be a little bit deep, rich. Are you, are you all ready to dive into something that's a little bit theological? Yes or no? Here we go. Okay, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Say what? Okay, what is this, all this business about altars and tents and eating? Okay, so remember the book of Hebrews, he's talking about Old Testament believers, or New Testament believers who are trying to go back to the Old Testament law and this law code and stuff. And so what he's referencing here, he says we, and I believe specifically this isn't talking about we Christians, but we Hebrews. Okay, so he's talking about Hebrews, those who are not born again, those who are Hebrews who are born again or completed Jews. We Hebrews, we've always had an altar, we've always had sacrifice, and there was some kind of some big timing from the Hebrew Hebrews to the New Testament Hebrews. If you got this religion, where's your temple? You say you got this great religion, where's your altar? Where's your sacrifice? You don't have a real religion. You're following this cult leader, Jesus. Okay, and so Hebrews 13, 10 boldly proclaims, we have an altar. We, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, the tent he's talking about is the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Remember in the Old Testament, they're wandering through the wilderness, but they still needed a place to offer sacrifice. And so they had this tabernacle, this tent that they would set up, and inside they'd have the Ark of the Covenant in the, the most holy place there, and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. Okay, he's talking about the tent, which is, I believe it's actually just a metonymy. It's a word that means, uh, that represents the whole. Sometimes if a law gets passed, you might hear a newscaster say, Washington did this. Now, you know the District of Columbia did not do that. Uh, it's representing the people of that district that made these decisions. In the same way, talking about uh, those who serve the tent, the tent represents the whole Mosaic law, the Old Testament system. Those who serve the tent are the priesthood, Okay, and under normal circumstances, as the priests are serving in that capacity, and you bring them a sacrifice, something that cost you something, and you're bringing that goat to God, and not just some sick, weakly, half-dead one. You're bringing the best you have, and you offer it to the priest to give to God. I believe that's actually analogous to our, even our offerings today. We, we take of that which is valuable to us, we give it to, the church, to God through the church, and anyway, that sacrifice, the priests were able to take from that and eat from that sacrifice of the people that they had offered to God to sustain themselves. But there was one sacrifice which they were not allowed to eat. And I, our text references this, you know, that there we have an altar from those who serve the tent have no right to eat. They're not allowed to eat certain sacrifice. The sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you don't get to eat from that sacrifice. Okay? He says, for the bodies of those animals is brought to the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin. This is verse 11. 
and are burned outside the camp. He's saying there's one sacrifice, those that serve the tent, they don't get to eat from it. Instead, uh, and if you want to study this more, go to Leviticus 16, but you'll be there a while because it's a little, little heady. But uh, Leviticus 16 describes this sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. There were several different sacrifices that were offered for the priests and for the people, but you would bring these two goats in, and one of the goats, which was determined by the will of God, by the casting of lots, one of these goats would be killed. Okay? And they offer up this sacrifice. And with these bloody hands, the priest would then turn to the second goat and he would lay these bloody hands through the blood upon this, the head of this other goat. And he would confess the sins of the people. And then they would take that goat and they would release him into the wilderness. Okay? He was called the scapegoat. That's where we get that term. He was released into the wilderness. It was a picture of carrying away the sins of the people out into the wilderness. But the other goat that was sacrificed, the priest didn't get to eat it. The priest would take that particular sacrifice and they'd go outside of the camp and they would burn the sacrifice. You get no part of this. This is purely uh, representing the atonement of the people. And all of this was just a picture of what Jesus would be for us. I believe he represents both goats. He is that lamb who is slain for us before the foundation of the world. He is also the one who takes our sins and removes them fully from us. He removes not just the guilt, but the stain of our sin, and he takes it away. Jesus is also our scapegoat, okay? So all of this is a picture, and I think he recognizes that in verse 12. So, so Jesus also suffered. He's saying, when you think of this Sacrifice from which they didn't have a right to eat of that sacrifice, that sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice, I want you to remember now that picture Jesus. We don't use that sacrifice anymore because we had our one final sacrifice in God's son, the true one, the one who is, a, who is the reality of the picture of Old Testament sacrifice. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Is that true? Where did Jesus die on the cross? It wasn't in the middle of a temple, was it? It was outside of the gate, outside of the city. Jesus dies out there for us and our sins. Why did Jesus die? Our text answers that. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Sanctification is a really interesting uh, course of study. Jesus died to sanctify us. Now there's a sense in which we are immediately sanctified. As soon as you become a believer, you have been declared righteous. You are justified before God and you are no longer considered guilty. God declares you no longer guilty. But we still have to struggle with sin in life, don't we? Have you ever noticed that there's some Christians in here who still sin? We do, don't we? Don't give testimony to that, but people do. There's a, that's, but there's a progressive sanctification where God is slowly transforming us through his word, through the renewal of our minds. He's making us more and more like Jesus. And there's a sense in which someday in future, read Romans 8, where we'll be, we will be completely sanctified, that God will remove this body of flesh that still drags us into sin, and he will give us a glorified body, and we will be made holy and completely like Jesus. But in the meantime, Jesus' goal in dying on the cross for us, it says here, is to sanctify us. I believe that involves all aspects of sanctification. So that means right now, why did Jesus die for you? It wasn't just to put a safety net underneath you so you don't go to hell. It's to sanctify you. It's to make you increasingly holy, to make you like Jesus. You look and act and think like Jesus does. And so Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sins wasn't so much just rescue as much as it is, if you could say, rehabilitation. It's to change who we are. 
You come to Jesus just as you are, but Jesus never leaves you that way. His intention is to change your life, to convert and to change you, to make you born again, to give you a whole new set of DNA that you look like a very different father. It says that Jesus suffered outside the camp so that we would do the same. He says, therefore, because Jesus suffered outside the camp, let us go to him. Well, what does that sound like? You have a sacrifice that is dying outside of the camp and we are now called to accompany that sacrifice. Who did that in the Old Testament? The priests. What are we called in the New Testament? Priests. And so God similarly, like the Old Testament priest, is calling us to accompany the sacrifice outside of the camp. Outside of the camp means you're away from your friends and your family. You're outside of, of being accepted by your culture and community outside the camp. He says, let us follow Jesus. Let's go where he went outside the camp and do what? What does your text say? Bear the reproach he endured. Reproach is not a fun word. It's not something that you pray for. God, would you please send a little bit more reproach into my life? Reproach is a word that means scorn, it's shame, it's rejection, it's persecution from society. Did Jesus experience any of those things? Though he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Jesus was scorned. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him. They mocked him. If you're God, bring yourself down off this cross. And so Jesus was constantly doubted. Jesus was lied about. Remember the Pharisees? They paid off people to lie about Jesus in a court of law. The Bible says that, a, that as believers, if we are mature in Christ, we will gladly follow that as priests outside of the gate, willing to endure the reproach that Jesus endured. That means that we're willing, for the sake of Jesus, to be scorned and disowned by sometimes friends or family. It means sometimes we get passed up for a promotion at the job. It means that people look down at us. <laughs> I've actually had people tell me, you know, you believe in a literal seven-day creation? <laughs> I thought you were smarter than that. You're going to get mocked for believing what the Bible says. And immature believers, they won't stand up for that. Remember the parable of the, the soils? And you have the seeds planted in different types of soils. One of them sprang up, but then the sun came out. It's a picture of the persecution of man, and it wilts and dies. That was never a true believer. That was somebody who was trying out the Christian life. They show signs of you know, interest in God, but they wither and they die away, and they, they fall away. They apostatize. It's not a true believer. They didn't lose their salvation. They just never came to the place of attaining it. Okay? And so persecution has a way of separating the sheep from the goats, those that belong to God and those that don't. Persecution does that. And so the Bible calls us as mature believers to willingly endure this reproach. Paul said in Colossians 1, 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So I am suffering for your sake as a church. And in my flesh I am this is an interesting phrase here. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. That is so that he could serve the church, so he could carry out the will of God. Paul was willing to suffer in immense, in crazy ways. Just read throughout the New Testament. He's, he's shipwrecked and he's beaten, he's jailed and he's ultimately beheaded. He did this willingly for the sake of God's church, his bride. Now what I want you to see here is he said something odd did that look odd to you? I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's not talking about the atoning sacrifice of Christ being incomplete and insufficient. 
that Jesus did his part. Now it's time for me to suffer to kind of earn my merit before God. That's not at all what he's saying. When he says, uh, he's talking about the sacrifices that were, or the uh, suffering that was lacking in Christ, it's not a word that means insufficient. It means simply incomplete. That Jesus suffered as God wished him to suffer, but now it's our time to suffer in his place. We are Christians, after all. Christian means a little Christ. Jesus says, the servant, that's us, is not greater than his master. That's Jesus, our Lord. If they persecuted me, what should we expect? They will persecute you. A mature believer endures suffering and persecution. Immature people or unsaved people, dead people, they don't grow very well either. They will cut and run. They won't endure suffering. They won't endure emotional or physical hardship. They'll leave as soon as Christianity costs them anything. I don't know if you guys remember studying the, the Beatitudes here. And we talked about the life signs of a believer. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount talking about what kingdom children really look like. And he uses that term blessed. Those upon whom God's divine favor rests. Truly converted people. And he gives us sort of life signs of a believer. And if you look at them, it almost appears as a growth chart. Remember? And you know, they, they, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they're peacemakers. And, and ultimately, at the very end of that list, what was it? I'll remind you. Verse 10, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It doesn't just mean people hate you because you're mean, nasty, and rude. It means they hate you because of what you believe. They hate you for your gospel. They hate you for your Bible. They hate you for your moral stances, which are biblically based. They hate you for that. He said, you're blessed. It's a characteristic of a believer. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. That sometimes as a Christian, when you hold to God's word, people are going to hate you so much, they're going to lie about you because they can't even sum up a, 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 the, the tr enough truth to actually make people hate you. And they want people to hate you. So they're going to spread filthy, awful lies about you. I've never been in a ministry yet where people did not lie and say all kinds of weird, wicked, crazy, false things about me. But you know, it's not just me. God's calling you to that life. That when you're walking in obedience to Jesus, there's going to be people sometimes even within the church. Because remember, not everybody that goes to church is saved. There's going to be people sometimes within the church who are going to lie about you. Because they just don't like you. Because you're, you're promoting not just human tradition. You're not just promoting what you like. You're, you're desiring to live out the will of God. You're desiring to live missionally for God. To, to have an outward focus of the church. And there's some folks like, I don't like that. I don't like that one bit and they'll get mad, and they'll say bad things about you, and they'll lie about you. Jesus endured that. Who was Jesus' greatest persecutors? Was it the Roman government? It was not. It was the religious leaders of the day. And sometimes Christians, if we're immature, what we'll do is we will avoid any kind of conflict. Ah, I've seen that happen before. I don't want to receive that, and we will avoid it. Friends, that is a sign of immaturity. It's not that we look to create conflict, but what it is is we're not afraid of it. If there is truth, if there's something that we need to stand for, friends, maturity says, I'm willing to take the emotional hit if it takes that. It means that I'm willing to love you enough that I see if you're struggling in sin, I'm gonna come to you privately and respectfully, I'm gonna ask you questions because friends don't let friends drive drunk. You know, the old 80s ad campaign for alcohol. You know, you don't let your friends drive drunk. Christians don't let friend, uh, their Christian friends just live in sin and destroy themselves. And so we enter into, th at times, awkward conversations and when people are doing wicked things in the church, we don't just you know, cover our eyes and say, God, would you please deal with that person? Because I know I don't want to. Okay, Maturity steps into those hard situations. And believers, one of the signs of a truly mature believer is that you believe so much in what you're doing 
that you're willing to suffer for your faith. You're willing to let people not like you. And right now, that's kind of where it stops most Americans. It's not so much that we're afraid we're gonna get beaten up for our faith. We're just afraid somebody may not like us. And so we modify our behavior so that people will like us. Friends, can I tell you, biblically speaking, that's a characteristic of a false teacher. Where you modify what you believe and what you say around the people that you're with like a social chameleon and you blend your colors in with your environment so that you won't stand out, so that people won't like you. Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, woe to you, and you know what that means. Woe is a pronouncement of divine judgment upon you. You should be sorrowful for how you are behaving. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Now, hang on. Is there any of you who really want to go out there and be like, you know, I don't have enough enemies today. I really would like to make an enemy. I'd like to have, I'd like to have more people dislike me, hate me, despise me. There's none of us who enjoy being disliked. There's none of us who like, you know, believers, you know, we're like, oh, I just hate it when I know somebody is upset with me and angry with me or dislikes me or disagrees with me. And so sometimes the temptation is to back away and to blend in with your environment. Every time somebody else, you're, you're around somebody different, you change what you believe, you change what you say, you change how you live because my end goal is that people will like me. Jesus says that's a state of woe. Did everybody like Jesus? If you're saying yes, you haven't read the New Testament, read through the Bible in a year with us, okay? A lot of people didn't like Jesus. I would say the majority of people didn't like Jesus there was a small handful of people who followed Jesus to the end. But most people didn't like him. They didn't like where he stands. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, so for so their fathers did to whom? False prophets. One of the characteristics of a false prophet is that everybody likes you. Why does everybody like you? It's because you don't stand for anything. You don't teach God's word. You're not willing to suffer as Christ suffers, but mature people do. Why do we suffer in this way? Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city. Nothing we do here lasts. It's all gonna die away, but we seek a city that is to come. That's where I'm living. I'm living and changing how I live today because this is just a moment in time. Psalm 90 says 70, and if you jog, you know, maybe 80 years. But eternity is eternity. I'm gonna live for eternity. That's what wise people do. It was the famous missionary Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you were to ask Jim Elliott today, you can't because he's dead, he's a martyr. Uh, but if you asked him today, what, what is the opposite of that? What is a fool then, Jim? He'd probably tell you, reverse it. He is a fool who exchanges what he can keep, eternal things, for what he absolutely will lose that we exchange spiritual eternal things just so we can live a little bit better life on earth. He would say that man is the fool. Number four, a characteristic of maturity is that you are consistent. So maturity is not just doing the right thing once or twice, it's consistency. Verse 15 says, through him, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. It isn't just something that is sporadic. It's not even like the Old Testament system where you would occasionally offer sacrifice. This is something we continually do in Christ. He says we offer up, and our sacrifice is not goats, it's not chickens, it's not pigeons, it's, it's the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. He says, do not neglect to do good and share what you have, okay? So remember what the purpose of a sacrifice is. If you read through the Bible, the Bible would be very explicit to tell you the Old Testament believers were not saved by those sacrifices. The blood of goats and lambs cannot take away sins. 
The Bible would be very clear about that. So why did they offer sacrifice? If that blood can't save, it's because they're saved by faith. Remember Hebrews 11, the Old Testament saints? By faith Moses, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah. And what was the evidence of their faith? It was their sacrifice. Okay? It was, it was faith in the Messiah that's to come. And if God says obediently that I need to offer this up, then I offer it up. And it, and it is a demonstration of their true faith. If you didn't offer sacrifice, you didn't believe in the Messiah to come. Now, what is the evidence, the sacrifice that we give that is evidential to the fact that I believe in Jesus? We don't have an altar here. Where, aren't you glad we didn't have you bring a goat from home and we just spend the whole day, man, you know, killing animals? But do we still have sacrifices, works, that James would say gives evidence to our faith? We do. And he gives us three examples here. One is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name, that we worship God. He says, continually, that we so long for God to be worshiped and praised, I wanna engage in it myself. And so we gather ourselves here today, like today, to corporately worship him. The fruit of our lips, it gives evidence. A fruit is something that gives evidence to the reality inside. Apple trees produce apples. It's how you know it's an apple tree. How do you can tell a believer? They long to worship God. That's a fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So that's, if you will, a sacrifice of praise. It means when we worship God, it's not primarily about me. It's not about how I feel. It's not about excitement. It's not that we have a Christian mosh pit up here that people are doing a Jerusalem march or waving flags or finger painting in Jesus' name. It's not about our emotions. At times, you come to church and you're hurting, but you came anyway. You come to church and you're sad, but you came anyway. You came to church and you just lost a loved one, but you came anyway. And at times, your emotions may not feel like worshiping God, but you offer it up as a sacrifice to God. He is still worthy, okay? That is an evidence of our faith is to be consistently, continually offering up this sacrifice. That is what makes you mature, by the way. Immature people, they still do the right thing once in a while, sometimes by accident, you know? Your children, occasionally mothers, they will surprise you and you'll come in, they clean their room. Why'd they do it? Nobody knows. You know, why'd they you know, bring you breakfast in bed this one time? Who knows? It is, something got in the kid's head and thought, I'll try this out. But that's what immature people do. Once in a while, they do something and they'll surprise you. They got all their homework done. Didn't even have to be asked. But are they consistent? So even with a believer, we can at times stumble into doing the right thing. I'll come to church. There's nothing else for me to do this day. There's no game. There's no show. There's... I'll come back to church, you know. And they just come when it suits them, but they don't prioritize it. They don't come to prioritize the, the worship of God to offer him a sacrifice of praise. He just gets to it when he feels like it. That's not much Christian maturity. Children are inconsistent. That's why most of you, you know, your kid got all excited about learning an instrument one time. How many of you guys have an island of misfit toys that is a closet full of instruments your kids started and never finished? You know, you got flutes and clarinets and who knows what, accordion? I don't know, anybody still play that? You got pianos in your living room that once upon a time your kid was plunking out notes and now it just holds all your potted plants. It's just a catch-all for the living room. It's because your child is inconsistent. Maturity is you find something, you stick with it, and you continually, you carry that through your life. That is what distinguishes the mature believer from the immature. Sometimes when you line them up, they can both be doing the same thing at the same time, or the right thing. But the, the, the immature believer, they'll drop out. The mature believer will continue. They'll continue. In fact, if we were to track your Christian life on a chart, you know, your, your, your participation in worship at church, your participation in community groups and D groups and your, your giving and your ministry that you do, from month to month, what would that chart look like? If it looks like this, friends, that's a sign of immaturity. 
We're not constant. We're not consistent. We're not continually offering up that sacrifice. It's something that's just, it's here and there. It's when it feels like it. You know, the more mature you are, friends, I'm going to tell you, the more that line will begin to flatten out. Okay? Our giving doesn't drop certain months because it doesn't suit us. Our serving doesn't drop. Oh, somebody offended me. I'm upset with that person at church. I'm just going to stop that ministry. That's not what mature people do. Mature people work it out, and they stay constant. Oh, you hit your alarm clock. Oh, look, it's raining outside. I'll catch the live stream. You know, Maturity is that consistency that even through hard times, I'm gonna stay constant in my, my Christian growth. He offers up a couple of other sacrifices, and the reason I include these with the continually offering sacrifices is because he says to do good and to share what we have for such sacrifices. Okay, all of these things are evidences of our faith for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So he says to do good, that we don't just attend church, you do good. We come with the intention of stirring up one another to love and good works. I participate in the ministry of the church. That's doing good. But he also says we share what we have. What is that? Is it that you just give your coat to somebody who's cold? Um, it, he's talking about Christian giving, whether it's giving to the Lord or giving to one another. Read through the New Testament. Read through Acts. Look at the early church. It said they had all things in common. It's not a proof text for communism or socialism. It was volunteer. It was free will offering. We see someone in here. You have a need. I have a need now. I'm going to help you with that. Or if there's a need in the church, I'm going to see if God can use me to fulfill that. I'm going to give consistently. My giving will be relatively a smooth and steady line because that's what mature believers do. We are consistent. This kind of giving, okay, sharing what we have, that is inconsistent. We would have to place that in the category of that's an area of immaturity I've got to work through. I want you to see here that our text also indicates that our motivation for doing all this. Why do you do this? Why are you here? Why do you do what you do? Is it from guilt and shame? Is it because somebody's going to call you if you don't come? Those are poor reasons to come. Believers, it says this, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Why we do what we do is that we want to please God. That's the only reason. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, therefore we also have as our ambition, what I want from life is this, whether at home or absent, live or dead, to be pleasing to him. Everything I do gets filtered through that, to be pleasing to him. And when that is the motivation for why you do what you do, friends, can I tell you, you are on the path to maturity. You don't need humans to praise you. You don't need us to notice you. You don't need us to pat you on the head. You don't need us to put you on the screen. Wow, behold, look at that. You're doing what you do. You're giving your service, your worship. is just because you know it pleases God. Friends, uh, sermons like this are hard to preach. They're hard to hear. Because in it, everybody, including myself, sees areas of insufficiency, areas where God wants to grow me. And the mature believer, it isn't that they're flawless, is that they strive for maturity. They long for maturity. They don't want to be kids anymore. Society, culture, we value childhood, don't we? Oh, stay a child, be a child. Why? Because that was the period of your life where everybody did everything for you and you had no responsibility on you. And we still have kids looking longingly back at their childhood. Some adults looking longingly back at their childhood. I wish I could go back to a day where everyone did everything for me, where it was all about me and people lavished gifts on me and dressed me and fed me and I had no pressure in my life. That's a child. And there's some people who have understood that Physically, you're physically matured, but in spiritually, we still want to go to be a child again. I want to go back to church where it was all about me. I want to go back to church where, where people fed me, where people cared for me, they looked after me, they did all the hard things for me, and all I had to do was show up. Friends, that's the characteristic of a, of a child, not an adult. 
I'll close with this illustration here. Maybe, maybe some of you have seen the, uh, the great theological work, Peter Pan. Okay. Uh, in that, we all know what that is. In fact, it even gave rise to an emotional disorder called Peter Pan syndrome, where somebody just doesn't want to mature. They don't want to grow up. They want to go back to being a child again. And if you remember in that story, you had Peter Pan, and Peter just did whatever Peter wanted to do. You know, if he wanted to get in a fight with his friends, he'd mix it up and they'd have fun. They want to sleep in till noon, you sleep in till noon. Uh, if you want to eat, eat whatever you want, cookies, cakes, pies, I don't care. And Peter got to do whatever he wanted to do. And that was a picture of childhood. And Peter didn't want to grow up. Remember, he kept singing that song and leading his lost boys in that song. I don't want to grow up. I don't want to go to school and be a parrot and learn those silly rules. He doesn't want any restrictions on his life. He just wants to be left alone to do what he wants to do and what pleases him. And we see that as immaturity. It's Peter Pan. And there's some Christians who are still there too, right? I don't want to grow up. I don't want to take on responsibility at the church. I don't want to lead anything. I don't want to teach anything. I don't want to serve. I don't want to give. I just want to come to church where people will notice me and look after me and praise me and, and spend time on me and comfort me. And, but friends, God doesn't intend for us to stay here. Remember Hebrews 5. By this time, how long have you been a believer? By this time, you ought, you owe to God for the gospel's sake. You ought to be teachers. You ought to desire, if you're maturing, friends, there's a desire in Christ. He will put that desire in you if you're a true believer. I long to grow up. I long to be mature. I long to teach. I long to use my spiritual gift. I long to take responsibility on why? Because I want to be pleasing to him. And if you remember how the movie Peter Pan ended, uh, did Peter ever grow up? He did not. But did Wendy? She did. And they come back and they visit each other a little bit later and come to find out Wendy had long since moved past Peter Pan. She went out and she found somebody, the love of her life, and she gets married and she has kids. And Wendy grew up, but Peter continued to live in Neverland. Friends, we don't want to be that person. Are you spiritually mature? Look at the marks this morning. Do you, you, know, do you have spiritual mentors in your life? Do you engage in community group and D groups? Do you train others if you are mature? Are you discerning? Do you test all things? Do you endure hardship for Christ? And in the doing of these things, are you consistent for the sake of pleasing Christ? Let's close in prayer. Father, we... We thank you for these messages. They can be hard to hear, God. They're hard to preach. They're hard to, to apply because there's not a soul here, God, who still does not have maturing to do. God, I pray that when we hear words like this, we don't immediately get resentful or defensive, that we don't get depressed and sad that we aren't where we should be, where we ought to be. But God, I pray that the Holy Spirit that was within us, that we would, that we would follow that prompting, that desire that he puts in our heart to continue to grow and to grow and to take on increasing amounts of spiritual maturity and responsibility in our life, knowing that it is only through the spiritually mature that God is truly glorified, that the whole world sees our light, they see our good works, and they glorify our Father in heaven. God, you are the motivation for these good works. God, may nobody follow what we've read today out of a sense of guilt and shame. God, may it just be like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, that my aim is to be pleasing to God. And God, would you be at work both to will and to do your good pleasure in us today, we ask of Christ. From all of us here at Unity, we just want to say thanks for spending time with us today. If you'd like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com 
We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, let us give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the people.